Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Rick, our Super Bowl is tomorrow. It is. It's big. Election Day and a special edition of Powerhouse Politics. First of all, a lot to go over. I know you're going to tell us exactly what's going to happen. You are, as I remind our listeners all the time, you are the political director. Yeah, you know yeah. this stuff. Um, but we are also joined by two of the uh, sharpest minds at, at ABC News, both of whom know a lot more than, frankly, either you or I. We have Mary Alice Parks uh, and we have Terry Moran. We do. And, and this is a big conversation and a big day. We're, we're sitting here on the eve of, of an election where I safely will say we don't know what's going to happen. We are uh, sitting here wondering what voters are about to say. There's a little bit that we do know about the election so far. Uh, we're, we are expecting more than 100 million people to vote in a midterm election. That's never happened before in the history of this country. Uh, it's, a, it's a turnout that we haven't seen uh, any time in this century when midterm elections have kind of fallen off the radar screen a little bit. And we have seen a president absolutely dominate the political landscape. And it does feel to me like you, you start with the baseline of this being a referendum on the president, but that meaning a lot of different things in different places. Uh, Terry, let's let, let's get some perspective from, from, from your mind. What does it mean to have this check-in with the voters at this moment? Well, I think you, you put it right. It is a referendum on the president, a verdict on the president, but in a very different way this time. And, I, and you could feel the switch in this campaign. The usual midterm is a verdict on the president, meaning what's the price of gas? Uh, you know, what's my 401k doing? Is more wages going up? Uh, how's my health care? A performance review of the chief executive by the bosses, the voters. But that's Trump. But there's Trumpism. And that's what he wanted to make this election about, his movement, as he openly calls it. And what happened was that uh, the Kavanaugh-Blasey-Ford hearings happened. And that gave him the opportunity to get to the, the, the guts, the, the, the red meat issues that really drove him into office. And that uh, it seems to me he's in politics to begin with. Uh, issues of identity and tradition and and equality among men and women and all, not that he doesn't believe in it but he believes it in a certain way and i think he changed the election so that now it's a verdict yes on him and his performance in office but more on what he stands for and how he's trying to move american politics from a less pragmatic perspective to these issues of identity. That's what the American voters are going to deliver their verdict on. Mary Alice, when, when you look at like the, you've been studying the early vote uh, and as Rick's alluded to, we were expecting record turnout. We've already shattered records for, for early vote. Can we learn anything about where this vote is coming from and just even even the fact of it being so much? Is it simply a matter that yeah, I mean, early votes have expanded or can we learn about there what's are There happen? are eight states that have already doubled their early voting. And in key counties in Texas and Nevada, early voting has surpassed total vote from four years ago. You know. I mean, that's, first of all, that's like, that's amazing, isn't it's it? It's incredible. But Texas, you have to remember, was 50th out of 50 in voter turnout four years ago. They could only go up. Obviously, if you ask Congressman O'Rourke, he thinks that that early turnout really helps him, tilts his direction. A big part of their game plan was to try to expand the electorate and get new voters registered and new voters out to the polls. And he's not wrong that traditionally high voter turnout, especially in midterms, tends to help Democrats but we don't know. We don't know where these ballots are going. We do know that voter registration has been up among minorities and among uh, youth voters. That's also where there tends to be new registration. Young people are the ones that that come out. But I have been totally impressed by those Parkland students and a lot of the youth organizers around the country that have made sure that issues like gun safety reform, minimum wage, 
student loan debt and health care are front of mind on voters uh, on voters' minds. And those are issues that play well to young people, women, families, and that tends to help Democrats. So, so Rick, you know, the, the conventional wisdom, and, and you hear it, you see it in the forecasts uh, of, you know, people to do this for a living. You also hear it from the operatives on, on both sides is that the Democrats will win the House. They'll pick up 30 to 40 seats that the Republicans will keep the Senate. They'll pick up, you know, either either hold or, or pick up as many as two. Let me put this to you. I think that that is not going to happen. Wow. Uh, I, I, All right, are we getting a John Carl uh, prediction? I, I mean, feel like we need special music for this. <laughs> I, I – I, I just don't think this is going to play out the way everybody thinks it's going to play out. I think that all the stuff that Mary Alice has just cited makes this harder to predict. We know that turnout intensity is high on both sides. I don't know what that means in terms of, uh, you know, midterms are notoriously difficult to predict anyway. Mm-hmm. Polling is is non-existent in most of these House races. I, so I, I just don't think it's going to play out the way everybody says it's going to play out. Well, I, I think there's there's a lot of reasons. Always a contrarian over there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sitting in the corner. You know, t- Terry Just Moran, don't ask me exactly Terry, what's going to happen. Terry is a famous so. contrarian, so he'll get a take on this too. But it, it, look, it, it, this is not a conventional moment. So conventional wisdom doesn't seem right for this moment. There's so many things that are pushing this in unconventional ways. And part of it is the engagement of voters that traditionally haven't been engaged before. Part of it's President Trump. Part of it's the fact that he has a, a strong economy to run on. That's unusual. Uh, but at this first midterm, at this check-in moment, to have these different forces converge in different ways, to have the different landscape for the House and the Senate, it, it really stretches our ability to look look into the future. Because all we can do in in looking at polls and making forecasts is what's happened in the past, and we were so we were so stung really by what happened two years ago, surprised, shocked by what happened uh, vis-a-vis the presidential election. That I think we have to prepare to to have unexpected results this time around. But I. The other thing that happened two years ago was that the Democratic Party fell apart. They were shocked. They were surprised and stung. And they've spent the last two years trying to rebuild. And a big part of the of the momentum going into this night that we have to keep in mind is that they're testing different hypotheses about how to rebuild. They've introduced a bunch of new all-stars to their lineup, introduced big characters to the country, Stacey Abrams in Georgia and Andrew Gillum in Florida that did so well, surprisingly well in those Democratic parties. They're running on a pretty economic populist message in even deep red parts of the country, running on Medicare for all and minimum wage. They've had to reinvent themselves and they're testing to see if that works and how far it'll go. And Terry Moran, you've been out um, uh, around the country in recent weeks, including at some Trump rallies, and you you see that the president is getting his base riled up. You mentioned Christine Blasey Ford, and that testimony is sort of the catalyst for this. But the president is finishing it around the, the themes of immigration. And it is about this migrant caravan, and it's about birthright citizenship, and it's about sending troops to the border. Uh, it's about what is, I think, widely viewed as a racist closing ad, so racist, in fact, that it's not going to be aired on most major networks or on Facebook. So, Terry, wh- what is that coming from, and what does that tell us about where we are today in 2018? Well, I think it's, it tells us that Donald Trump's election brought an era to an end. It's why polls, which reflect the past, aren't really predictive right now. There was a kind of consensus about how our politics should be and how our policy should be for a long time, 30, 40 years. It's over. And the moment I'm reminded of, because I was living overseas, is Brexit. So Brexit was just as much of a shock to the British people. And then the following year, Theresa May called this snap election. She said, I've got the the wind at my back and I'm going to get a big major majority and I'm going to, you know, take it to the people and young people in Britain. 
rose up as never before, angry that they had been so lackadaisical and slept through the original election and felt they were having their future stolen. And they stripped her of a majority, basically. She's a minority government. So I, I think I expect something unexpected to happen because the past can't be predictive post-Trump. There were too many problems in that consensus style of politics, which was seeming fake to so many people, and the consensus policy, which in particularly economically wasn't delivering for too many people. And Trump, like a hammer, just busted it up. And, and, and this is the first time that the nation's going to have a chance to render an electoral judgment on Trump and Trumpism. Um, and I just don't know how that's going to play out, but I do know how it's played out in a few individual places. We've had a number of special elections, almost all of them in deep red territory. Uh, we had Doug Jones uh, winning in Alabama. Now, there were obviously other factors besides Trump in that race. We had this seat, for Mike Pompeo's seat in Kansas, which the Republicans held on to, but oh so narrowly in a deep red place. We had uh, Tom Price's uh, a seat in Georgia. Again, the Republicans won, but but oh so narrowly in a place that they've been accustomed to winning huge double-digit margins. We saw Connor Lamb win in Pennsylvania. Um, so it seems to me if I were a Republican tonight, I would be very nervous about where that party is going into this election, even though there's kind of a, a set-in a conventional wisdom, which would not be a bad night for Republicans. If they simply lose the House narrowly and – hang on or gain in the Senate. That is not a bad historic run for, for, for Donald Trump. And looking at what has happened um, in, these, in these individual races, looking at what Mary Alice, what you mentioned, the money advantage, there's been a serious money advantage for Democrats in the, in, in, in the final run. And you're starting to hear Republicans complain and be worried about this. You know, Michael Bloomberg's coming in, dumping in 2 or $3 million in individual races. I just think that there are, are – there are enough really ominous warning signs for, for Republicans going into this. It's interesting how in some of these races, Democrats have successfully been able to flip the script on Republicans. They have been able to argue that they're the outsiders. Democrats have seen this new generation of new candidates that have been military leaders, former vets, uh, health care officials from President Obama's administration that have been able to run against incumbent Republicans as as the new generation coming to Washington. We know that there's such deep frustration with Washington, still a desire to drain the swamp, but Democrats have been able to utilize that, capitalize on that in their own way. And I think to Terry's point about how the past can't be predictive anymore, the president has closed this campaign much like he did 2016. It's it's the playbook that he wrote to great effect. It may be that that playbook doesn't work in 2018 and won't necessarily work in 2020, that even President Trump, who seemed to have cracked the code, have figured it all out uh, just two years ago, he could be off for the moment. He could be on. He may be right. He may he may get the, the kind of result that conventional wisdom holds, John. Uh, losing the House would be a very big deal for a lot of reasons, but historically, it's not an unusual circumstance. Holding the Senate... Um, Given the map, shouldn't be a, a huge surprise potentially, but President Trump could have done a whole lot worse. He would have uh, a, a, a whole lot of reasons to be happy about the results. I think we can all at this table agree that he's not going to be chastened by this in some way. He's not going to come out <laughs> the next day and say, you know, I, I, I got shellacked or thumped as two previous and, presidents and, said. You know, and there's another I, – I spoke to one of, the, one of his top advisors in the White House who said with this economy, with this economy being a, a, a dream economy for any president – this person was saying, if if we lose, if Republicans lose the House, then somebody needs to be fired. 
I'm sure people are going to be fired, by the way, either way. I That's think we're going to be a So before we, we close out, I do want to get what each one of you are, are, are watching, even you, Rick, Rick, and I'm sure you'll give us your, your, your total prediction. But one thing on the other side that, 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 that I have to say, talking about how I'd be very nervous if I was a Republican, one thing I mentioned to you earlier, Rick, very, very interesting conversation with um, – with uh, a Republican operative, we might call kind of establishment Republican people that have never been happy with Trump and all this, and they say that, that, that this White House political operation in the final weeks of the campaign has been very organized, very disciplined, very responsive. They've gone in uh, with what races to target, where they need the president deployed, and 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 it's been uh, the, they've been very responsive and organized, which I've never heard anybody say about this White House. I mean, you in know, any context, um, yeah. so so the, the the president has um you know has has been campaigning in a way that we just haven't seen uh, presidents campaign in a midterm to a degree we haven't seen, and he's been focused on places where where he can help. Uh, I do wonder why he's spending so much time in Montana. It seems like a race that's not necessarily in play, but we know he's got a kind of a personal, you know, his old friend Ronnie Jackson and Tester and all that, uh, but. Rick, let's start with you. What 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 are you what are you going to be looking at? You could go out, outside almost every major American city and find a congressional district that has traditionally been Republican: uh, New York, Chicago, Miami, Atlanta, Dallas, Houston, Salt Lake City, Los Angeles, Orange Seattle. County. You could go around this country and find these little reddish splotches that, for a long time, have had. A, a Republican lean. They're country club Republicans. They're Chamber of Commerce Republicans. They're establishment Republicans. They're Bush Republicans. They are not and have never been Trump Republicans. And the thing that I'm watching is if they go blue, will Donald Trump have cost Republicans this slice of the electorate for a long time because of the way they've engaged uh, suburban voters, women voters primarily, college-educated whites, people that for a long time have had their instincts on the Republican side. We know that President Trump is going to do well and the Republicans are going to do well in deep red parts of the country. He's very popular there. But it's remarkable to me how you can look across the map and say this could be uh, a, a wave. It may not be the right term, but there's enough spots on that map that could go from from red to blue with some long-lasting repercussions. What am I watching? Politically – Healthcare and whether or not that leads sort of the top of voters' minds when they come out, that looks like it will benefit Democrats, which is amazing because 10 years ago it was exactly the opposite. We've now seen essentially two presidents have to continue to compete in the healthcare space. The American voters are still frustrated about this issue, still craving big change, still feel disappointed by both parties that that issue has not been dealt with in a real way. If, on the other hand, immigration seems to be top of mind, we think that that will help Republicans. But besides politically, unfortunately, I think a lot of us are going to be watching who is able to vote. There's real questions about voter turnout, voter suppression, issues that could uh, arise at the at polling stations from North Dakota, from Georgia, from in Texas. And, and we will have to make sure we're watching all of that as well. That's a great point. So I, I covered the Supreme Court in my spare time. And the Supreme Court for a couple of years now has been uh, avoiding the question of whether you have a constitutional right against political gerrymandering, against partisan gerrymandering. They don't want to decide that in part because they suggest the voters will fix it, that you don't have a constitutional right against first. It's hard to find in the Constitution. And second, it's politics and politics change. You don't need us to get in the middle of it. I'm going to watch the map. 
because this has been a pretty rigidly gerrymandered country by the Republican yes. parties who controlled so many state legislatures. And if if they do lose the House, even in spite of that, A, the Supreme Court's never going to take a political gerrymandering case. And B, it does suggest that things can change without a lawsuit, which I like. And then there's two races I'm going to I'm going to watch. It won't surprise you. One, the Texas Senate race. Beto O'Rourke, I think, has done as much as anybody can to change that electorate, to see if 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 that kind of message can find a new electorate even in Texas. I like that question. And the other is Steve King, who's a disgrace. And uh, it would be interesting to see if a man who has openly supported white supremacy is reelected. I'm afraid he will be. But uh, I'm going to watch that that very closely. Well, I'm, I'm going to – you made me think of one other thing, which we have three, uh, three people running who have been indicted over the past year. Um, so I'm wondering if, if maybe all three of them could win. We've had you know, Menendez who was eventually quitted. But we also have Collins and Duncan Hunter who are both still uh, you know, could, could, could be convicted, uh, you know, both potentially winning. And maybe you know, we could have all three of them win. So the thing I'll, thing I'll be watching in terms of, of, of the results is if Beto O'Rourke wins in Texas or if Stacey Abrams wins in Georgia or if Andrew Gillum wins in Florida, any one of those three or potentially all three of them – will instantly become national figures in the Democratic Party. A party that has been starved for new leadership will have new leadership with any or all of them who win. Rick? They'll be big stars, you're right. And I think the Democrats who have been thinking along to 2020 all along have been – have been uh, eager for this. And I, there's something else I think that unites if those. If they win. If they win. If they win. There's something else, though, I think that unites those those three races. Because we've spent a lot of time here talking about how some red state senators are basically acting like Republicans or, or talking about how much they like President Trump or working with him. In these three cases, in Florida, in Georgia, and Texas, you have a clean distillation of the differences between the parties. You have, in each of those cases, a Republican who is very much a Trump Republican, up to including Ted Cruz, who's undergone that transformation. Uh, but in Ron DeSantis in Florida, in Brian Kemp in Georgia, they are Trumpers through and through. And they're running against Democrats who are progressives, true blue progressives. They want to expand Medicaid. They are very much in the, in the mold of Bernie Sanders and the progressivism he injected into the party. Generationally, they're different. They're in their 30s and 40s. And I think in each of those races, you just have the, the clear choice that President Trump has muddled so much about our politics and scrambled so many coalitions and has so many people worried. There you have a Republican saying, this is what I stand for, a Democrat saying, this is what I stand for, and the voters get to decide. Well, I'm going to give you one more then, just, just before we, we go out. I'm going to give you one more. Go. He's giddy. I mean... Bring it on. <laughs> Billy Billy Sutton, Democratic Ooh. candidate for governor in South oh, Dakota. Yeah. Prairie conservative populist, if he can do that. Can we, can we combine all that together? The rodeo He's star. Yeah. Yes. He is a uh, – I think that's a, that's, a, that's a tight race. He's running against Christy Nome. Either one of them could win. If he wins, that will be an interesting star for the uh, for the Democrats because he is very much a moderate to conservative Democrat. He's a, he's a pro-life Democrat, um, but he's a very charismatic guy. Uh, you know what? Like you said, he's a rodeo star. He's young. He got paralyzed in a rodeo accident. He has energized people. That is one of the most Republican places on earth, uh, the state of South Dakota. And he is in a uh, a toss up race right now for governor. So that is all the time we have for powerhouse politics. Ending on South Car- South Dakota. Yes, that is a come very on, very John Carl thing to do. I like that. <laughs> My grandfather was uh, born in Clark, South yes. Dakota. <laughs> Terry Moran. I went to Hill City oh, High School. Uh, Mary Mary Alice Parks. Rick Klein. Thank you. Uh, For listening to Powerhouse Politics, thank you to Avery Miller, Angie Yak, uh, Trevor Hastings, the entire Powerhouse Politics team. And we will talk to you right after the election. On the other side. 
So you just woke up. Your phone is lighting up with headlines and push notifications and a text from your mom saying, how do I click this? Okay, maybe that's just me. But if you want to get up to speed, check out the new podcast from ABC News. Start here. Literally, the ground was shaking. I'm Brad Milkey, and every morning we're going to take you to the stories that matter with fast, fresh insight. Hello, Robert Mueller. Michael Cohen calling. All in 20 minutes. Start here. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app.